Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tej Talks. You know, I speak a lot about revaluations and, you know, I kind of go through them on my various social medias, but it can still seem like a dark art, especially when I've had some great valuations and one bad one. And, you know, it was quite hard to find a clear pattern. The only pattern being what's the square footage and what does it compare to? So there's a lot that goes into getting a revaluation before you even put an offer in right a lot of it goes in before the deal now neil chowdhury who's my guest today does awesome hmos like his design is amazing uh, he's not so active on social media so you may not have seen it before but go and check him out now and i promise you you will love his designs they are high-end hmos but they are different you know i think there's a few people out there doing hmos well and this is one of those that I'd put in the category of very well designed. I mean, it gets above market rent, which is natural when you design and you know, something functions so well. But the main thing on today's podcast is we speak about an 80 page, you heard it, 80 page valuation report that he does for his student HMOs. So we talk through, you know, HMOs versus single lets in terms of passivity. But, you know, the main, I guess, the big value from here is that revaluation pack, which we get to near the end. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes, uh, on any Apple device and on the Facebook page. I would really appreciate it. There's thousands of you listening, but I don't have thousands of reviews yet. Um, Also, if you want to talk about investing, or jumping on my earn and learn program, please check out my website, tejinvest.com or even tej-talks.com slash education. Neil, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Tej, great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. No problem. We are doing this on Zoom, not only because we don't live near each other, but also because we are in the middle of lockdown and this it's probably not going to be released until the end of lockdown or at least until we're out of it so hopefully this is a distant memory to everyone listening <laughs> yeah. and, and watching us on youtube and i first came across you in the brochure for the property investors finalists award on the night and i took it home and i was like right there's going to be some interesting guests in here i'm sure there are took it home i had a look through and then i think simultaneously like I saw you on Facebook posting some stuff or we connected and I was like damn these interiors (laughs) look beautiful so I was like okay thank you you know yeah this has to be done but before we get into kind of what you're doing and and actually you're going to share with us like your tips for creating and get well creating a valuation pack and making well and trying to increase your valuation as much as possible which I think for everyone is such a challenge and such a dark art that it's it can be really tricky to understand but you are going to show us the light on that um, <laughs> i'll do my best definitely <laughs> but before we get into that what were you doing before property and what led you into property yeah so Ted, thanks again for uh, the invite so yes prior to property i was uh, actually a golfer so golf was my life for many years played professionally for about 10 years and before I became a pro, I actually played for uh, the England men's team as an amateur as well. So I had the fortune of traveling all over the world, literally competed uh, on six different continents, 
and played with some of the best players in the world. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't one of them, so <laughs> that's why I'm not doing property. But uh, I, had a, I had so many great memories from my time golfing, and uh, I was just reconnected with one of my golfing buddies yesterday, actually, as well. It was just nice to kind of reminisce on some of the stuff we used to get up to on tour, and yeah, it was all, all good fun. But um, yeah, so golf, golf was me for many years, and then in 2016, I had major back issues. So I had to stop golfing um, for the whole year, in fact. Uh, and I wasn't sure how long it was going to take for my back to recover. So I kept thinking it would just be another week, just be another week. But a few months into it, I thought, right, I really need to look at doing something else, earn some supplementary income. So started reading various books and read some property books and came across Property Magic by Simon Zucci, which is uh, a very inspirational book. And it really kind of opened my eyes as to what's possible in property. Um, and then I ended up doing the three-day mastermind accelerator with Simon uh, just, you know, just a few weeks after reading the book. Um, so, yeah, that's how I kind of learned about property initially. And we actually secured our first deal um, a couple of weeks after doing the accelerator program. So, yeah, so that was our first ever deal doing property. And then I actually went back to golf for uh, for about a year or so. But I really struggled with my game kind of coming back from 2016 injuries. And, um, yeah, I decided to retire from golf uh, at the start of 2018. And I've been pretty much full-time property since then. Wow. And what was your first deal? So my first deal... Um, was all of our properties are in Leicester, which is where, where I'm from. And our first deal is a student house. And then all of our subsequent deals are also student houses as well. <laughs> but when we did our first deal, uh, we had no intention of really renting out to students. Uh, we really wanted to go down the young professional route and the HMO route, because that seemed the most attractive to us at the time. But the first deal I actually bought in my personal name and first time landlord trying to get a HMO mortgage was quite tricky. Um, but I think it was Birmingham Midshires was the lender that we bought from initially. And they allowed you to have up to five tenants on one contract. And you could still rent out the property as a HMO, it's fine. It's just everyone had to be on one contract. So it was in a good location for both students and professionals. So we thought, well, let's just do the students. It's such a good rate. Um, looking back, I just can't believe how good a rate it was. Actually, it was like two points, something like two point one percent. We were paying interest wow. only. Yeah, it was like two hundred and fifty nine quid a month or something for that property. Uh, and know, how much rate. did you buy it for? Do you remember all? The so, details yeah, I, I do. Yeah, so so I remember uh, all those details because I actually talk about this still on uh, on the pin circuit as part of my presentation. Um, so that one we bought for one eighty. Just found it on Right Move actually, and it was a property that had sold, been on, been showing as sold on, for many months, but obviously it fell back through. So we went and did a viewing, and and the owner did say that yeah, it basically fell through after about six months it took, and it's because she uh, didn't have the right building regs for the loft conversion that she'd done. So she had subsequently redone the loft and got it to conform to building reg standards. Um, and then relisted it on the market. I think it was on at 190, and we we got it for 180. Um, we're in a good position to buy it. We bought it with a mortgage, and we did a 
it was quite light refurb really looking back it didn't feel like a light refurb obviously our first one it felt <laughs> felt like we were conquering the world with it but um it was a relatively light refurb uh we spent about 17 and a half thousand pounds uh refurb mainly just getting it hmo compliance uh did a new kitchen redecorated it fire doors all, all that kind of stuff and then um yeah we've got it rented out to to a nice group of students and it's been been a really good good cash maker for us and it's been a really nice property for our students to live in as well they've always really enjoyed it there wow and then um what yeah. made you go for straight into a hmo because like you said the, the the mortgaging can be difficult and it is a sort of bigger challenge than say a buy to let what made you go from sort of golf read a book course and then go right hmo <laughs> so for us it was the the cash flow elements really wanted like a steady flow of cash flow and um that was my only deal at the time so i actually went back to golf after that and if i just did one single let it wasn't really going to be enough of a game changer for us to um you know to make it worthwhile as it were so that one property you know all of our hmos are a good cash earners that we make a minimum of 1500 pounds per month per property um and you know you only need a handful of those types of properties for it to really replace your income i don't want to sound too cheesy here <laughs> but it does give you know it is a relatively passive income and it is um you know a good income as well from just a few transactions and then you know so i guess speaking of the kind of passivity of it a lot of people who have hmos or, or at least who read about them can see that they could be more management intensive, lots of humans, same space, sharing fridges, sharing, you know, everything sometimes. And you said it was actually quite passive. So how have you made HMOs so passive for you? So that was the, the thing on, on that one. We kind of were forced to do the student route because of the mortgage conditions and the mortgage conditions were so attractive that we just had to go, go with that mortgage really. Um, but then we found the students so easy to student let so easy to kind of oversee. So you get the benefits of the HMO income, but they're all on one contract. They all have rent guarantors. There's no council tax. So we don't have to worry about individual room banding. They all move in together. They all move out together. Um, so we just found it really a lot less hassle than we probably would have done if we'd gone down the professional route. And yeah, we really like the student accommodation, uh, student markets as well, because there aren't too many people doing the high-end student HMOs. There's a lot of the purpose-built blocks, which are all brand spanking new, very modern, very small uh, and very expensive. And there's a lot of really, really poor student accommodation in terms of shared student housing as well. And there's really not that much in the way of high-end student HMOs, but there's still the demand for that because students, they have their first year in, in the purpose-built stuff, paying a fortune, and then they want to still live with their friends. But they're used to kind of that nice, modern, clean environment, and that's just not really on offer to them. So, uh, so yeah, we've kind of built up a small portfolio of uh, student houses, and they do tend to rent out, uh, rent out very quickly. Very interesting. So we'll get to your kind of growth in a second. But then, so are all of your houses, so they're all student-lets, but are they all on the same AST? Is that something you have throughout all your properties? Yeah, so um, each property has its own AST. Um, 
and that's just just standard really for for student lets um that's interesting because i i didn't think about that because obviously with professionals you could you could never really do that and they probably would never want to sign it but with students it's sort of quite normal to like flat share but then i wonder how many other people are doing that because you know i hear well i know with students you don't necessarily once they move in they're there until the academic year but I think maybe that's something that people haven't talked about or has been open in, I don't know, the knowledge of, of HMOs because a lot of people I speak to don't realise that aspect, which, like you said, can make it even more passive because there's so much joint liability with the guarantors. So Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's a really it's an interesting thing. one. We, we didn't think about it too much at the time when we went down that route. We did it because the mortgage was so cheap and we're first-time landlords. And that was kind of the only route we could go down. But then as we did it, we kind of realized the benefits of it. So now we just, that's that's all we do. We, we just love the student market. So we make our properties to a very high spec. Um, so they're suitable to professionals if we wanted to rent to professionals. But our just preferred market is, is to the student market. And okay. yeah, for, for those reasons, really. And then, but with, I guess, so I guess with HMOs in general, People argue, you know, you should diversify, have HMOs, have buy-to-lets just because of regulation, legislation, voids, blah, 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 blah. But you have gone HMOs only and students only. Where do you see the risks in that that people should be aware of? So, yeah, there are challenges to students. And it's not all glory with students. There are a few advantages over professional HMOs to students. And the main thing, really, professional HMOs, you don't have to be confined to being next to a university and a lot of universities in the areas around have article four as well. So with the HMO market, you still want to be quite central and close to city centers and uh, really industrial areas or high areas of employment, but you can be, you can expand your horizon slightly more than within a mile of a student campus. And also with professionals, you're not worried about the timing with students it's hard to time so you do refurbs and they are hard to time in line with the academic year and you might have to uh you know make you might have to put in professionals for six months if the timing's off whereas with professional hmos as soon as your project's done you can start letting out rooms uh, straight away so they're the main kind of disadvantages of students um and what was the question again <laughs> so i guess like what was going the, on it. so so those are the are those are the kind of disadvantages but what are the risks from like a so if we ignore refurbs uh, and ignore course, risks, yeah. the management like what are the risks of you know let's say certain legislation changes or like what are your risks that you can't control yeah ab- absolutely okay so the main risk is the student bubble might burst um if a university closes down uh, you could be stuck. You know, if you're, you've got a university that's in a slightly remote location and it closes down, all of a sudden you've got a property that you're just going to really struggle to rent to any other tenant type. Um, so one of the things that kind of we've done to negate that is uh, we're lucky in Leicester. Both the universities are very central, both close to the city centre. So our properties, we feel, can easily shift to a different uh, tenant type. But that is something to be cautious of. If, if your university is in a remote location, and particularly if they haven't really invested in their infrastructure recently, the universities, it might make you question their sustainability long term. 
So uh, that's something I always tell people is just to make sure that your university, keep an eye on it and, and make sure it is investing in its infrastructure because then you know it's, it's planning to be there long term. Because I have heard stories of universities just completely relocating their campus. And uh, yeah, it can leave you in a bit of a mess there. And then I guess the other risk is there is a big rise in purpose-built student accommodation. Um, but for us, it's kind of been a bit of a blessing because without the really, they are very expensive purpose-built stuff. And without that, I don't know if we'd be able to charge such a premium on our student HMOs. But because the, the students get accustomed to, to paying those high rents in their first year, you know, they're willing to pay a premium for, for really top end student houses. Um, and we still feel like we're delivering good value, even, even at those high rents. Yeah. yeah I'd say I think they're, they're important that we, we speak about them, right? Because it's easy to hear what you're saying and then hear, you know, 1,500 per house, <laughs> but then to, to not see the other half. So it's good of that course, we kind yeah. of share that with people. And I think what you mentioned there is like, they're happy to pay more and you will have people who are always happy to you know it's not like you're crazily amount more than them because of the quality and like it's easy to just do a hmo right like a bed a table and magnolia and like and it you know it will rent for how long who knows and for what rate not as good as yours that's the really important thing but when did you realize or was it from the beginning that you should go high end because it will it will be better for you in the long run yeah, and interestingly, going high-end doesn't actually cost that much more on a refurb. And um, we looked at it that if we spend an extra £1,500 on the decorating side of things, and that's the bit that really um, makes your property stand out is that end finish. And if that helps us achieve an extra £10 per person per week, you know, on a six-bed HMO, for example, that's like three thousand pounds extra in annual rent. So it's like a two hundred percent return on that extra one and a half thousand pounds invested. And also, um, not only will it will you be able to achieve premium rent, it will actually rent out much quicker as well, and and create that additional demand for your property. So it has like a, a win-win in, in both respects there. Um, guess the only thing is when you're really targeting the luxury market is you need to really uh, deliver on that you, you do need to have good quality accommodation so I'm sure we'll talk about some of the other properties but we've been able to rent out properties that are still building sites based on the quality of our other properties uh, you know because our students secure their properties many many months before they actually move in so when they're expecting good quality, you know, we have to really deliver on that. And we always try to over deliver on, on that side of things. Mm. No, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think there's like two camps in property. There's one who are just like, oh, we'll just do a house because rental demand is so strong everywhere, whether it's a buy to let HM or whatever, and it, and it will rent, which it will. But, you know, you can't deny that it will. But then there's the other camp, which I think we're both in and a lot of listeners are in, which is let's make it look good. Like, let's make it yeah. functional design, Absolutely. make it work well, because as humans we like nice looking things and if and what you said about speed that's something that i used to not think about like getting you know the shorter it takes to get rent in to get someone in the more money you make and the more you recoup your initial cost quicker and that's why you know having a good agent good advertising which we'll get to is yeah, all absolutely. important but the fact that you can sell 
you know, rooms based off your previous says a lot about, you know, people's trust in your quality. So if we go back to your story, you had that one HMO, you went back into golf and then you came back out of golf. And then was it quite an easy decision to be like, yeah, we're doing property now full time? Right. So um, it wasn't. No, it was a difficult decision for me to step away from golf. Um, the property that we did, it was kind of very successful for our first deal. We were very pleased with how it turned out and how it turned out so quickly as well. Um, and that really gave us um, a bit of a feel and, and a desire to do more property. And I guess I found my last year golfing, I had one eye on property and one eye on golf. And my focus, I guess, was uh, not, it was too dis uh, dispersed. It wasn't like focused enough just in one area. Um, but as I kind of struggled with my golf and with my injuries in that final year, I did decide to retire. And it was tough because, you know, it was a dream of mine to try and make it as at the highest level as a pro. And I had some success and, I, you know, I won some televised events and stuff on Sky Sports, but never really made it to the highest level. So that was a bit of, bit of, bit of pill to swallow, really. Um, but no, once, once I made the decision to retire, I really went all in with the property side of things. And I ended up doing the main mastermind program with Simon Zucci. So did a, did a full 12 month program and really pushed myself in, in those 12 months and probably for a further six months after that program, really, really pushed myself hard just to try and hit my, my targets. Hmm. And, you know, speaking of property education, I know that program with him costs 20 grand. Something like that, yeah. I think it was it was slightly less when we did it, but yeah, it was around eighteen, I think, when when so we did it. And it's, yeah, it's it's big investment. It's a big investment. It's one that I think, like you know, to be honest, I think Simon has quite a good reputation, and I think actually looking at a lot of people who've been on my podcast, a lot of them have been mastermind winners or blah blah blah. Um, I don't know him or anything about the course, but thinking about it, it's quite a clean reputation there, which is very unusual in the training industry. No, I've been he's so ethical like his whole ethos is about ethical investing and that's one of the things that really uh drew me towards his coaching over other people it's, it's certainly not like a shark like you hear of other things and although it's 18 grand it's time it's money well invested if you can actually commit for a full year to that program uh you know it paid for itself many times over for from my point of view and I'm you know it was, it was a great decision uh, I'm really pleased that uh, that I went on it and do you think you could have done it without that training I think it would have taken me a lot longer um to do like because we didn't have limitless funds of cash to throw into properties one of the main things for me uh, to go on the train one of the main uh, factors behind going on the training was to learn about how to creatively finance deals, to work with investor finance, to work with commercial finance as well. And, you know, and before the mastermind program, I didn't know too much about bridging finance and I didn't know how to go about approaching investors to try and earn income. And then that's, uh, that's pretty much all I do these days. So, so I, I probably would have got there eventually, but not certainly not in the speed um, to not, not, I wouldn't have had that that speed. Yeah. But, you know, it really focuses your mind that one year. And then, you know, in in that one year, talk me through. I'm sure many many things happened, but talk me through like 
you know, some of maybe the highlights in terms of how your portfolio grew? Do you want to go through some deals? Like, yeah, absolutely. It. Happy to, to go through through that. So, so the first deal that I did that I mentioned, which I did in 2016, I was on like a two-year fixed mortgage with that. And because I went back to golf, I wasn't in a rush to refinance that property or anything like that. But actually in my mastermind year, it was due to refinance. And that's kind of where I discovered the importance of creating value packs as well. Um, so when that property was due to be refinanced, we, although it was a relatively light, lightish refurb, 17 and a half K refurb, um, the property did look much, much better than when we bought it. So I really wanted to try and maximize the end valuation on that to pull out some more cash and to reinvest it as well. And that's where kind of the system of the valuation packs, which I've really kind of refined since then came about. That was definitely one of the highlights for me on the year was to come up with this process for these detailed value packs. And it's, it has since helped me and many other investors, many of the masterminders achieve the high end valuations as well. Uh, and I guess the other highlight was uh, Simon picked me as one of his top performers as well. So that was always, always quite nice as well. Amazing. And how many houses or HMOs did you buy? So from the point you went like full time and golf was, you know, done to, well, I guess to now actually. Yeah. How many have you bought in total? So, yeah, so it's not not that many, but um, so there's one that I did pre-Mastermind and I did four deals on Mastermind, three of which were HMOs and one of them is a bigger deal which we're working on at the moment, uh, which is a block of 11 studio flats as well Ooh. and also for students. Everything's for students. <laughs> I was going to say, you are the provider <laughs> for students. But and... Yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of a beast. And that, that one was a, like a joint venture deal with my parents, actually, on, on that one. Ah, and you know what, actually, something I find really interesting is, like, when people make their goals, it, a lot of people say to me, Tej, how do we make goals? Because we don't know what we're going to achieve and we don't know what we could do. And it is tricky. I struggle with making goals. How did like what you achieved in that year or up until now, how does that compare with what your goals were for that time, this time? So on the mastermind year in particular, I was actually able to um, surpass my goals in terms of properties acquired and how much income they would eventually generate. But something to be clear is it takes time for those properties to generate that kind of income. I think people sometimes miss that. They think, you do all these deals and within six months, you're suddenly a millionaire and <laughs> it just doesn't quite work like that. You know, you have the whole process of finding the deals, the conveyancing, the legals, which slow can be slow. <laughs> and then we do very heavy refurbs on our properties now as well, which, you know, sometimes can take several months as well. And then you rent it out and then it becomes relatively passive income generating. So in terms of the deals that I acquired in my mastermind year, I did more um, than I was expecting and, and more that I'd set myself a target to. And I actually didn't set myself a target in terms of number of deals. I did it based on how much cash flow they were going to generate. So I had like a cash flow target and then you kind of work backwards to see, well, how many deals do you need to get generating X amount of income, which total that cash flow. So that's kind of how, how I worked it. 
And in terms of goal setting, that was something that was drilled into me from my golfing days as well. I uh, did a lot of goal setting on there. Um, and I think it's something you really want to think about why you, you want to do property. Um, and if it's just to have a bit of income on the side, or is it something you want to do full time so that you can really truly replace any income you're generating from work? And you have to think about it quite hard, really, and, and to come up with a number. And then you can work back from there to see how best to go about achieving that number. Yeah, I agree. I, I always say this. I always say set the kind of set your lifestyle, your goals, your sexy goals, as I call them then convert them into the numbers, then convert it into properties and then boom, 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 this Absolutely. many letters, this many HMOs. Yeah. So, you know, you've you've built a portfolio quite quickly and of, you know, high cash flowing assets. For people who, I don't know, are kind of you know, on the fence of like, should I do HMO? Should I not? What advice would you have for them? So um, HMOs are an interesting one for sure. They, without doubt, they give great cash flow um, compared to single lets, but they are a lot more labor intensive. They're not for us with our student lets, but I'm thinking more for professional HMOs, and traditional HMOs. You are going to have more hassle. You are going to have more queries from tenants. Um, you're going to have a higher turnaround of tenants within a year than you probably would have from a single let as well. So if you don't want the hassle, you need to find really good lettings agents, managing agents to do that. But obviously that there's a cost involved to that as well. So you just need to factor all of those things in. And I talk about the benefits of students because how easy they are to manage. We don't actually manage our properties either. <laughs> we, we have lettings agents and we factor that into our costs as well uh, and into our profits. And we still think it's worth worthwhile, you know, to have it professionally managed. Yeah, if it gives you more time, depends what you're in property for, right? Like time versus money, someone else might want to manage themselves, which I definitely wouldn't want to do. But yeah, maybe they would. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, before you mentioned you learned how to creatively finance things and really how to work with investors. So you know, all the deals, I guess, after the first one, have they all been investor funded? How are they funded? And how did you make it happen? So after the first one, we actually then remortgaged our own house as well. Um, we, Simona and I, Simona and my wife, we bought our house back in 2013, I think, and we managed to add value to our own house. And it just there was huge capital growth in our area as well. So we had all this equity kind of sat in our house. So we thought instead of selling the house, we were thinking of actually selling it and moving into rental accommodation in a flat just to free up that capital. But then we thought, no, let's, let's not do that. Let's think about this properly. We can just refinance the property and just move that equity into a new property, into an investment property, which we can then generate much more income than the cost of remortgaging will be. So, so we had that capital at hand. And then the first property that I did in 2016, that was due to be remortgaged in 2018 as well. And we managed to get over 50 grand back out of that deal. Um, so basically that was enough for two more purchases plus a, a half a refurb as well. And then since then, we've just uh, used all investor funds for the refurbs. We don't use any of our own funds for the refurb. We try and make our own funds work as hard as we can for deposits. 
because it it's just easier with lenders if you're able to use your own funds for deposits. And then with our bridging lenders, they're absolutely fine with us using investor funds on, on the refurb element. So, uh, so that's what we've done. And by doing that, it actually enabled us to not tie up all of our cash in one go. We're able to, you know, do simultaneous deals during during the mastermind year. Hmm. And you know, when it comes to investors, obviously a very very common question. I'll start off with one of them. How have you like physically found these investors? Yeah, so that's something that I found so challenging. Uh, that, and that, as I say, that was one of the reasons I wanted to go on Mastermind was to learn more about funding deals and, and working with other people. And that was a real mental block of mine. Is like, how do I go out and ask people for money? Like, <laughs> that's that's what it felt like to me. Um, but then people want to learn. You know, people want to get involved in property. They might not have the knowledge that you have. Uh, they might not have the skill set, they might not have the time, and they want to learn. So something that we did, which proved to be quite popular at the time, was to do like an earn and learn where people could invest in our refurbs and we'd pay them a fixed return. It was quite a, a low return, really, like they could have got it for more. But the real value in it for them was the fact that they could come and visit our projects, see the refurb element. Um, and I show them from start to finish exactly how we go about buying a property, adding value, refinancing it. And then I teach them about the valuation packs as well and how we're able to maximize the value. So, um, so they get the benefit of all that knowledge and experience, plus they get their money back with interest. So it's actually a really good deal. It's cheap finance for us. We really enjoy kind of sharing the experience with other people as well. So it works works really well there. Um, and you, you asked physically, how do you go about it? So that's something I just stood up at pin meetings and said that um, said who I am, said this is what I do and, and, and this is what I'm offering really. And you know, you know, you do you do meet people. People at property events want to be involved in property in some form or another. And the money's out there. And if you've got the deals, you just need to connect the two really. Yeah. And I think you know what you what you kind of said was like the earn and learn thing is exactly what I do as well and it works it works fantastically and I think yeah if you're if you're just starting out you're probably not going to get that many people sort of interested especially if you don't have the knowledge and the experience and the kind of hey look what I've done but it's definitely a combination of like the networking um you know did you use social media at all to attract people I'm a, a bit of a luddite, to be honest. Not like you, Tej, all over social media. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, no, I, 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 I did on Facebook. I was kind of make, making it known that I'm doing property. So on Facebook, I'd put regular posts. And I do genuinely speak at property events as well. And I, I teach people. And so I, I do kind of promote myself to some extent on that. Um, but I don't use social media that much really it was just the fact um that i was doing masterminds so i had a bit of credibility from there and also that we'd actually completed some really successful projects as well which uh, which which helped on on that respect and i think when people see you putting your own money into the deal as well and they're just paying for the refurb element um they know you've got the skin in the game as well so uh, they're not taking on all of the unnecessary risk 
And another way we've been able to generate finance is through like SaaS pension schemes as well, um, which is, it's, it's, it's good. It, there's a lot of money available, but it's not as straightforward as just borrowing money directly from an investor. You have to go through all this stuff in the background as well. Um, so if you need money quickly, that's prob probably not the best route to go down as we learned. But it's it's great, you know. It's there's there's funds available. So now I don't worry too much. I know if we need funds specifically for a refurb as well, um, we'll be able to access that. Um, you know, it's not not too big of a concern for for us anymore. And then on all these HMO deals, are you leaving uh, some money in, or are you taking it all out, or maybe talk me through one of the deals? It'd be interesting to know how it's it's like structured. Yeah, so uh, I'll talk you through, this was the second deal. This is just on the finance side or how we found the deals or um, a bit of everything? Just the deal, so like purchase price, refurb, revalue. Yeah, okay, that, so yeah. I'll talk you through one of the deals. So one of them was in an Article 4 area. We've managed to agree an exchange delayed completion uh, with the owners and we made sure the correct planning was in place between exchange and completion. We didn't have to actually complete until that was in place. So we bought it for £200,000. So we needed 50K for the deposit, which came all out of re refinancing that first deal that we did. And then we needed about seven and a half, I think, uh, £9,000 in terms of legals and stamp duty. And then we spent another 45 on the refurb. And that refurb funds was... Um, we managed to get all those refurb funds entirely from investor finance as well. So 200,000 pound purchase price, 45K refurb, plus some additional fees on top of that. And then we had that property revalued at 320, uh, less than four months after purchasing it. So that was our quickest like refinance as it were, and probably most value gained in such a short amount of time. Um, and that was with a commercial valuation. So the property was, was value, revalued at 290 on bricks and mortar and 320 as a commercial. And, and we took out the commercial valuation on it. And do you, so I'm guessing you do all en suites to then get that commercial as well? No, we don't mm -hmm. actually, interestingly. So we go very high end with our students, um, but we generally avoid en suites because our target market students, they're a group of sharers, like a group of friends sharing a property. So we try and put in as many shower rooms and, and bathrooms and stuff as we can, but we still want it to feel like a single dwelling. Um, may need to give us multiple exit strategies if we ever sold the property. Um, if you're only selling the property as a HMO, uh, you know who knows what happens to the HMO market 20 years down the line, um, but we could easily resell that property back to a family if we wanted to. But because the property was in an Article 4 area, we were actually able to get the uh, commercial valuation. The com commercial valuation is basically, um, if you've had, if the property's been through some planning gain, you're more likely to get a commercial valuation. So Article 4 or Surrey Generous. And then how does, how is the commercial valuation worked out? Is there a sort of rule of thumb that people can listen to this and, and work out or? Yeah, so it's, Gross rent, so that property generates about 40,000 pounds of gross rent in a year. And then 
you, you have to minus for costs and it's anywhere between 20 to 25% usually they take off for voids, management, maintenance. So they will deduct 25% off the gross rents. And that gives you what's called a net adjusted rent. And you divide that by the yield for the area. And that's comparable yield. So if you look at what other HMOs have sold for in the area, so say they sell for like a 7% yield, that would then be the yield for your area. And in the Midlands, it's kind of common that they use like around a 9% yield. We've managed to get that lower. Um, the lower the yield, interestingly, that they use, the higher your valuation goes up. It's kind of the opposite to how people uh, would think. So if you have a good HMO in a crap area for HMO sales, yours yeah, will do better? No. If Say so the yield is used to stop a property in Liverpool generating £40,000 being valued the same as property in London that's being valued at £40,000. So that's one of the tools that valuers can use to adjust the end valuation. And in expensive areas, they tend to be lower yielding areas. So that's why when you're getting your HMO revalued, you actually want the comparable yields to be relatively low. So you want to look for HMOs that have sold for a higher price than you'd be willing to pay, basically, for your comparable data. And there are always landlords and investors that overpay for properties, luckily. <laughs> So it's annoying when you're trying to buy properties and people are out, out bidding you and stuff. But actually, when it comes to revaluing it, it's, it's very useful for, for the commercial valuations. Interesting. And of course, speaking of revalues, this is the, the showstopper you're going to share with us. <laughs> Putting all the pressure on you now. World's um, longest segue to, to yeah. this point. <laughs> uh, you know, revaluations on buy-to-lets are, are difficult, you know, that's what I do. And, you know, you can do the pack, you can do this, but there comes a point where it's like they just, they're either just dicks as surveyors, they're incompetent or, you know, they're competent and you haven't done your research, which happens. <laughs> um, it does, yeah. So I, I do a lot of research before we buy the property. But the value of packs are essentially, if people don't know what a value of pack is, say you've bought a property and... You generally you need to have made some improvements to if you want to quickly refinance a property at much higher value if you've not made any improvements the value is going to be very reluctant to value it much higher but if you have genuinely provided an uplift to the property you can get these huge uplifts and valuations in, in a very short amount of time and uh, so what i do is i do these very detailed my value packs are about uh, 80 pages long so very Eight zero yeah, Eight zero, yeah. So very, very detailed. That's like a, <laughs> that's like a book. That's like an ebook. That's okay. Yeah, I'm so, really well, uh, interested. You say ebook. I do send them as a digital copy in advance. I don't even print out physical copies anymore. Oh, good. It's Bloody digital hell. copy because if you try and give that to a value on the day, they're not going to <laughs> yeah. look at it. Um, and it's broken into six components. So first thing you need to do, the first component is to prove that the property is in an area of strong rental demand especially for HMOs, um, because HMOs don't work that well everywhere, not like family houses. For HMOs, it needs to be in a really strong area. So I, for us, we're doing student houses, which are suitable to professionals as well. So we just need to prove there's the demand there. So 
So you talk a bit about how close it is to the campus or it might be two universities, it might be a teaching hospital nearby, uh, it might be a city centre nearby, it might be major employers nearby. So you want to show how close it is to all of those areas. If it's in an Article 4 area and you've got the right planning to use it as a HMO, you really want to talk that up as well. Uh, property might be in a conservation area and uh, you know that has a perceived value to it as well. So you just really talk up the location. And something that's important to point out, the value packs, all the information you put in them has to be accurate. Like there's no bullshit in them. It's just pure stuff which is accurate, but it's showing it in the best possible light for your valuation. So you prove that the property is an area of strong rental demand. Second thing I do is I describe the uplift of the property. Um, and I do that fairly concisely, to be honest. I try not to keep to take more than a page describing the uplift, but I want to describe the, the really high ticket items. So if you've done a heavy refurb, where you've you might put in en suites, new kitchens, shower rooms, rewire, replastering, renewing central heating, new boilers, all all those kinds of stuff are really heavy ticket items. If you've added any floor space, which is one of the things we like to do, we like to either we like to maximise the floor space. So we'll either do a rear extension, go into the loft, all those kinds of stuff. You really want to hammer that point home as well that you've added floor space as well. So. You, Describe the uplift, talk about all the high ticket items. So we're only a few pages into this value pack. We've still got a lot of long way to go. <laughs> Something I forgot to mention, actually, when you're talking about the uh, location is you can include maps as well. So if you are close to a city centre, it's worth putting a map of your property and you can see just how close like Leicester is in, in my example. Or if you're in an Article 4 area, it's worth bringing up a, a photo from the council's website of the Article 4 area just to show that as well. So the third element are before and after floor plans. Um, and because we do quite heavy refurbs now, we, we have to have building regs drawings. So we have proper architects drawings. We have architects drawings of the before, and then we have like proposed plans as well. And then we have all the building regs drawings and they look really juicy. Like they look great and they are genuinely building regs drawings, so it's good to have those in. But the fact is, if you put that in, it looks so much more than somebody who's just maybe repainted the walls and, and changed the carpets. You know, it just looks more professional. It's, it's a lot more detailed. So definitely, if you've done anything substantial like that, you want before and after floor plans. Fourth element, uh, and this is where it does start to get a bit long-winded, uh, the schedules of work. Um, so those first three parts, you try and keep relatively concise, really, because you want the valuer to read through exactly what you've provided and to look at everything. The rest of the valuer pack, it doesn't matter if they read through every single section. The fact is you're providing the information. The fourth part are the schedules of work. And my schedules of work are very detailed. So for like a five or six bed HMO conversion, my schedules of work is about 11, 10, 11 pages long. Like literally line by line everything you've done and if you think through it like even in one one room you know everything you've done from changing the skirting changing light switches plug sockets flooring 
replastering, repainting, you know, you go through it and all of a sudden you've got this huge list. You do that for every single section of the house and all of a sudden you've got this really detailed schedule of works. And the reason I do that is A, the valuer can see exactly what's been done to every part of the house, but also it's just page after page after page of works and improvements that you've made to the house. So you're really helping to justify that huge uplift that you're asking for. That's the whole purpose of value pack. You're trying to justify this big uplift. So that's kind of the main bits of the value pack. But then here's the long section, which are your before and after photos. And I put tons and tons of before and after photos. And I actually, I have before, during and after photos as well. So um, before photos, you want to put in there and then the during photos are when the property is kind of back to brick or it's in a really distressed type of state and then the after photo you want these beautiful professional images in there um, and you can just such a visual image to see the huge uplift in each room of the property so i do that for the entire refurb and i prioritize it with the heavy stuff like if i've done a loft conversion i'll, I'll put those photos in first and the bedrooms that have maybe had less done i'll put in towards the end and all of a sudden you've got just pages and pages of detail for the valuer to look through but there's actually only a few pages where you want them to to read line by line and, and that's why you want to keep those first few pages quite concise and then the sixth element is so we haven't even talked any numbers here and you can already see how you've managed to prove the uplift to the valuer but the sixth element is the juicy one and that's the comparable data. And that's, that's the really important one. And for a bricks and mortar reval, which most HMOs would be, to be honest, with like most normal HMO lenders only ever give bricks and mortar. Uh, the important factor there is price per square meter and, and price per square foot as well. And just for the listeners, you can, you can get that quite easily from the EPC register. You know, you find properties on net house prices or right move, just properties that have sold or land registry, properties that have sold nearby. You can search those property addresses on the EPC register, pull up the floor space, and all of a sudden you've got a list of properties that have sold by price per square meter. And you want to try and find the most favorable ones that have sold. So, uh, and then the price that you're trying to get it revalued at kind of needs to sit in line with, with those properties. You're unlike if a prop, if the average price sold in your area is two thousand pounds per square meter, you're unlikely to get your property revalued on a bricks and mortar basis at two and a half thousand pounds per square meter. Like it's just a reality check for you as well. <laughs> but that's 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 what I do with those. And then in terms of commercial valuations, I go into a lot lot more detail with with yields and net adjustments. Um, and net adjusted yields and all these kinds of stuff but also include rental comparables as well so uh, we achieve a premium on our properties but it's all well and good you achieving a premium but you don't want to be the only dog in town achieving those those premiums so we find other providers that are doing similar stuff that are also achieving these similar rental prop rental um, values and we, we put those in as the comparables as well, just so that the valuer knows that it is, it is in line with other um, suppliers. 
and uh, it's more sustainable as well than if you were the only person doing it. <laughs> There's more than value, value packs. Which well, that's that's it in 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 essence to to the 80, value impacts. So, so yeah, you can you can go through this in in a lot of detail, but that's so that's kind of the gist of it. How have you ever been undervalued? No, we we sometimes ask for more than we're hoping for. Yeah, and then it gives the value a bit of leeway to chip us back. But no, we've um, generally even on the, our last two, which were kind of during the coronavirus, just before the lockdown, but during the coronavirus uncertainty, we thought we might get chipped slightly, but no, we didn't get chipped at all. Um, in fact, you know, higher valuations than we were even hoping for. So. And when, when the surveyor then meets you on site after, you know, you've sent them the 80 pages, do they ever be like, mate, thanks for that pack? Or are they like, <laughs> I loved that? Like, do they ever comment on it? Yeah, so the commercial lenders commercial valuers really like that they actually want you to send that kind of stuff because um they have to provide like a commercial valuation report which is very detailed so they appreciate all the detail bricks and mortar valuers uh they don't need to provide much detail in their reports but no they they do appreciate it one thing to say is i never call it a valuation pack when i send it i call it like a project overview or an information overview I like to call it a project overview generally. And it is just all stuff that you have done to the property. You've bought it. This is all the stuff that I've done to improve it. And here are some like other properties that have sold by sold nearby and, and other properties that are renting out. You're just making their life so much easier. So, uh, and the fact that you're emailing it to them as well uh, means they're much more likely to accept it than if you're trying to force a physical copy yeah and you know what i think right even if even if you had a lazy surveyor who didn't necessarily read all of it who skimmed it you know whatever i think it's quite a good a a, a very subtle show of force you're basically saying look how much research i will do so you better give me the valuation (laughs) because when i appeal there's going to be 80 more pages. So do you want to be in the office? <laughs> it's it's true. It's, it's right? true in, in that respect. So I um, look at it as it's evidence-based. The value pack you're providing is evidence-based. So you're making it much, much harder for the valuer to, to rein the value valuation back because you're providing all the evidence that they need to, to get that, give you that good valuation. And also it's important that you're realistic as well with your end value. I mean, some people think that just because it's a HMO, all of a sudden they're getting 10 times gross rents and it doesn't matter what the location, what standard of refurb, if it's article or not article, you know, you need a bit of a reality check. And actually doing that price per square meter, price per square foot comparables before you actually buy it really helps to give you an idea of what the end valuation is likely to be. And then you can budget your refurb accordingly to get that kind of uplift as well. hundred percent. You have to do that. I get people messaging me saying, I've bought a house, blah, blah, blah. Can you, you know, look at this figure? And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, what's the end value? They're like, uh, I'm like, what did you just buy? What? Like, how, do you, how can you do that? So it's very rare though. I get that very rarely, but it does make me like stop what I'm doing and be like, how how are you going to do brr like with this model this doesn't make any sense you need to it doesn't take that long and we we invest in a 
specific area. So all of our properties are quite close by. So I'm just constantly like updating my comparable data, removing stuff as they get older and bringing in new stuff. So it's actually very um, beneficial to me anyway to have that. Uh, and it definitely helps. And there are a few other things I do. That's kind of the main gist of the pack. Um, <laughs> I have a, a specification schedule as well, which I've, I've done recently, um, which is basically every single item that I buy in a property, where I source them from. Like, I, I, it's quite detailed. I've got it down to how many millimeters my tile spaces are in between tiles and stuff. Wow, you're well, very detail orientated. Uh, yeah, I do. I do like the detail. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't used to send that to the value, but I've actually got that as a supplementary document as well. So this is my scheduled works. This is everything <laughs> I've done, and then this is the specifications of those works as well. Wow. I'm not expecting them to read yeah. that one. <laughs> well, you might but get a really geeky it, one who's interested, who's like, oh, yeah, see what, but also. But it shows that, you know, just how much work is involved in a refurb. And I think even when you're doing it, you don't quite appreciate just how much, especially if you're trying to provide all the stuff for the house, just there's so much like stuff you have to buy, so much, so many things you have to look at. And then there are a few other things. I, I provide all my certificates. And actually, th they, those things I do print out and have on the day. So for HMOs, like you need HMO license if you've applied for it or so HMA license application, emergency lighting certificate, fire certificate, uh, Legionella risk assessment, EPC certificate, all those things that you need. I think I've missed a couple as well there, but all those certificates I have on the day. And also because we've had quite a few properties revalued in the last few months, so I've, I've got numerous valuation reports as well. So I actually include those in my comparable tables as well. I include properties that have sold, but I also put in properties that were personally had revalued by Rick surveyors. Um, so I, I put those in and I just take those on, on the day as well, just as to provide a bit more evidence. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of all the information that I provide um, to valuers and kind of in preparation for it as well, you want the house to be clean. So if it's fully tenanted with students, you know, I do have, <laughs> have a, a polite word with the students just to say, you know, we get on really well with our student groups as well. So I just say that it's, it's really important. They'd really appreciate if you keep your rooms tidy. Um, we'll send in the cleaner before the valuation anyway. You don't have to worry too much. If you just make sure things like your beds are made and then I'll say, I'll, I'll turn up maybe 20 minutes before the value and I'll just go around, make sure all the blinds are open or the lights are on. Just want the house to be presented nicely. Like if you're trying to sell the house, yeah want it to be presented in its best light really <clears throat> i agree and i think i agree and i think like i mean i've had evaluation before where it was meant to be done and i turned up and i was like Fuck, this house is not done <laughs> i literally rolled my sleeve up and just had to start cleaning i was like to the building uh, I, was like, I was like you lot are in fucking trouble but firstly hang the doors sort the shit out I oh literally my God, got so you went, doors weren't even <laughs> Those were like their tools. I literally got their stuff and just threw it in the garden. I was like, "Listen, you lot can fucking deal with this shit." Like, I was like, and they were like, "Oh, we thought it was an agent valuation." I was like, "I made it very clear this is life or death. This guy oh, is like the like god that. of my, my career, so you need to sort this." And but fortunately, I got overvalued. You could argue. Um, oh right, hey, that, that's good then. The guy was just like, "Look, you know, I see it all the time." It was very weird, you know, because 
I want the house to be like what you said, pristine, like you're selling it. But he walked around and it was as if he walked around with like fuzzy eyes. He didn't really look at anything. He didn't really comment on the decor because it was it was nice. Yeah. He just sort of looked, measured it and basically did a square foot valuation. And he said, look, new kitchen, new... Like he just wasn't seeing, he wasn't interested. He was just seeing a house with four walls and a carpet. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because they aren't looking at it from an aesthetic perspective as much they're looking at it from any malfunctions in the property or any issues that they need to notify the mortgage lender about who's their client remember we're not their client the mortgage lender is their client so they're looking at it from the lender's perspective but um oh yeah i just don't like to leave anything to chance so <laughs> I, I would suggest yeah. to have your doors hung before valuation day uh, yeah no I, I definitely <laughs> reckon, i mean i've actually had this twice and and once it was overvalued the other time it was kind of well, I think it was undervalued, but it was it was again square foot, spot on, didn't comment on anything. So, and but minor no, let's So, I think it, it does vary. But in your case, where like there are so many factors, and I would just never let this happen. I, yeah, I just don't want to leave things to chance because mm. we're trying to get the properties valued so much more than we bought them from in just like sometimes three months, four months, and you know we're trying to get it valued 120 grand more than we bought it for it's you've got to really earn you've got to earn that you know it's not going to happen if you just leave it leave it to chance i would say um so yeah we we'd like to go through all the detail and stuff but you're right you don't want to overwhelm with too much detail which is why the bits of the value of pack i really want them to read i just keep it very 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 concise and the rest of it's just all the stuff that you've actually done and it doesn't matter too much if the valuer reads it line by line or not fact is that they can just glance through it and see just how much work's been done to the property absolutely yeah if you can provide the comparables as well on top of that you you know you're home and dry (laughs) yeah hopefully yeah if if the surveyor's feeling happy that day um (laughs) so We've reached almost the end of the podcasting. I think that's been very, very useful. But just before we before we leave, uh, what are your goals for for twenty twenty? I mean, maybe they've been skewed by Corona, but what are your aims this year? Yeah, so this year we're not actually looking to purchase anything at the moment. Not not that we could, even if we wanted to. Kind of in the middle of lockdown during this recording now. Um, but we've got this big development of the eleven studio flats. Um, and that's that's our kind of big goal is to get that one complete uh, before the next academic year or before next year's academic year, I should say. So uh, we've still got time on our hands for that one. Um, but yeah, that's that's much bigger project than our normal HMO conversions. So we think that's going to take a bit more concentration. And uh, and the goal on that one is to make that the the best quality student accommodation uh, in Leicester. You know, we want to, we'll be going up against all the purpose-built stuff on this one, but it's going to be bigger and, and nicer and, and better kit, kitted out for the students as well inside the rooms. So, uh, yeah, we're just going to focus really hard on this on this one big project and really make sure we uh, deliver it as we'd like to. Amazing. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do it? So the best thing is to visit the website, which is vogabode.co.uk. So that's vogabode.co.uk and you can contact me through there. I like that name. That's awesome. <laughs> um, Neil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Tej. Really uh, great being with you. Thank you. 
If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.